Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, we have a privilege, an amazing privilege, to come before you in prayer because Jesus paid it all. Because of the blood of Jesus, we can come to the throne of grace and mercy. And today, as we look to your word and consider what it means to be persistent in prayer, I pray that we would have confidence because of who we are in Christ, forgiven, freed, set right with you, to live life with a purpose, to honor and glorify you in all that we do. We thank you for the teaching of your word that is inspired by the Holy Spirit, that is truth without any mixture of error, that gives us an understanding of who you are, who we are in you, and how we're to live and glorify your great name. So bless your word now, draw us closer to yourself through it, and be glorified in our lives, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. We're going to consider today verses 1 through 8 in a message entitled Persistent Prayer. We continue in our series, Jesus Came to Seek and to Save in the Gospel of Luke. And we'll read these verses here in just a moment. In his book, Origins of a Journey, Daniel Grogan recounts a remarkable story. In 1873, the book by Jules Verne, Around the World in 80 Days, a fictional account of a traveler uh, who a real person actually inspired the account of, became almost an instant classic after it was published. Investigative journalist Elizabeth Cochran Seaman was among the readers, and she's better known by her pen name, Nellie Bly. A capable journalist, Nellie Bly, approached her editor, and she had the idea of trying to beat the record set by the character in that classic book, uh, the inspiration for Around the World in 80 Days, but there was a difference in her thinking because she thought she could get around the world faster than the character in the book did. So the business manager for the New York World publication, George Turner, did not agree with her summation of it, and he thought that a man uh, should make the journey instead of Bly. So she replied, very well then, start the man, and I'll start the same day for some other newspaper, and I'll beat him. They agreed to support her effort after all. On November the 14th of 1889, with some money on hand, a small essentials bag, and the clothes on her back, she departed New Jersey on the Augusta Victoria. Her trip would include London, Calais, Brindai, Port Said, Suez, Aden, Colombo, Penang, Singapore, Hong Kong, Yokohama, San Francisco, and more. Readers got excited as they learned about the story and they followed closely. And by the end of the journey, in days when communication was not very rapid, more than 500,000 people had guessed how long it was going to take her to make the trip around the world. She traveled by horse and burrow and steamship and bicycle and train and foot and 
At one point, she got caught in a major storm that threatened to halt her travels, and she said, I'd rather go back to New York dead than not a winner. She made the final leg of her trip amidst celebration and arrived in New Jersey, 72 days, 6 hours, 11 minutes, and 14 seconds after beginning her mission. At the age of 25, this young lady accomplished her goal and persevered. We need perseverance in life in a lot of different areas, but we're going to think today about perseverance, particularly in prayer. And what does it mean to persist before the throne of God in a way that honors God and draws us closer to him, conforms us to the character of Jesus, and ultimately gains the answers to the prayers that we need? Perseverance is defined in part as a continued effort to do something or to achieve something in spite of difficulties and even in the case of failures. Someone who persists continues on a course of action for a prolonged period of time. And Jesus teaches here in Luke chapter 18 about the subject of persistent prayer. Begin reading in verse 1. Now Jesus, he told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not give up. There was a judge in a certain town who didn't fear God or respect people. And a widow in that town kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he was unwilling, but later he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or respect people, yet because this widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice so that she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. Then the Lord said, verse 6, listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay in helping them? Verse 8, I tell you that he will swiftly grant them justice. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is the second teaching in the Gospel of Luke by Jesus about persistent prayer. The first is in Luke chapter 11. In Luke chapter 11, he tells the story of the persistent neighbor who knocks at the door of a friend at midnight to ask for bread so he can serve it to a guest. The friend gets up in spite of the inconvenience of the person knocking at his door and answers his request because of what the scripture identifies as shameless boldness. The man at the door simply would not go away until he got what he needed. Jesus concluded that particular teaching by saying, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Verse 9. The idea is to keep on asking, keep on seeking, and keep on knocking. As we come to Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells what is commonly known as the parable of the unjust judge or the parable of the persistent widow, depending on which angle you look at it from, so that his disciples would pray always and not give up. And so that we would be able to pray always and not give up. A widow continues to go before this unjust judge to plead her case. And he repeatedly refuses to hear her and to answer her request. 
but finally grants justice. And the reason that he does so that's identified here is because of her persistence. And Jesus made the summary point that if an unjust judge will in fact give justice, then think about what God, who is the just judge, will do on behalf of his people. And then Jesus asked a question that seems somewhat like a rhetorical question. We'll come back to it, but it has direct application. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? I believe this parable is an encouragement to be faithful in prayer and to grow in God, to grow in your relationship with God. The application is both broad and narrow. It is broad in the sense that it connects directly to the immediate context of this section of Luke as we pray for the return of Jesus and for the consummation of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is advancing toward its conclusion in this age that we live in, and then eternity will be ushered in. And what will bring that conclusion point is the return of Jesus. So the king of the kingdom is returning. And this is the broad sense of the application. But it is also narrow in the sense of our individual relationships with God as disciples of Jesus. If you're saved as a disciple of Jesus, the call on your life is to continue in prayer until Jesus comes back and don't give up. Don't grow weary. Don't quit. But keep on praying. Keep on trusting. Keep on believing. So in these few moments that we have together, I want to show you three lessons about the nature of persistent prayer. Lesson number one, pray according to the character of God. Pray according to the character of God. There's a contrast in this parable between the unjust judge and the character of God. The judge did not fear God or care about people according to what these verses tell us. This type of judge would have been out only for his self-interest. One commentator pointed out that this would not have been a Jewish judge because in the Jewish world, problems would have been brought before the elders rather than being brought to this type of court. So the example would have pointed to a paid magistrate of, court, uh, of sorts uh, who would have been appointed either by Herod or by the Romans. These type of judges were notorious in their proceedings. They would travel around and they would hold court uh, in tents. And the judges would set their own agendas. And if you got your case heard, likely the only reason that you got your case heard is because when you came to the person who was running interference for the judge and scheduling these things, you had enough to bribe him in order to get your case heard by the judge. And yet we find here the contrast between that type of judge and God himself. God is righteous in his character, and he is just in his actions. Now, I know that sounds very similar, uh, so I want to see the similarities here, but I also want you to see the differences in, in, in how it applies. Uh, God is righteous in his character, and he is just in his actions. Psalm 89 and verse 14 says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Faithful love and truth go before you. So when we think about the righteousness of God, what we're thinking about is the perfection of his holiness. God is 
unlike any other. There is no one else who compares to our God. He is perfectly holy in his character. And in every aspect of who he is, he is holy, holy, holy. This is the Lord God Almighty. The justice of God is the perfection of how he relates to his creation and people who are created in his image. So the perfect righteousness of God is his holy character. The perfect justice of God is how he relates to all that is under his rule. And we know that the only way to be declared righteous is through faith in Jesus Christ because of the finished work of Christ. And the reason that we can be declared righteous is because the sacrifice of Jesus satisfied the justice of God. We couldn't do it. We would have had to pay the penalty for our own sin by being eternally separated from God. But God sent his only son who lived and died and now lives again. He he perfectly kept the law of God. He fulfilled what God sent him to do. He willingly died in our place. And in doing so, the wrath of God was laid upon him and he satisfied the justice of God. So when we say God is righteous and just, we're saying that God is holy and he consistently and always does what is right in every circumstance. A.W. Tozer said, just when used of God is a name that we give to the way God is and nothing more. And when God acts justly, he is simply acting like himself in every situation. Because God is righteous and just and cares about doing what is right, then that says that we as his people should seek to be holy as God is holy, and we should seek to do right because God does what is right and just. So in other words, this impacts how we live in the world. This impacts the decisions that we make, the way that we relate to people, the way that we stand up for what is right and how we speak out against what is wrong. As God's people, we have that responsibility. Listen to how Isaiah 1 and verse 17 says it. Learn to do good and seek justice. Correct depression. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. Micah 6 and verse 8 takes it a step further. He has told you, old man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So we understand that our faith is not compartmentalized. Our faith is not ultimately private. Our faith is not to be concealed. It is to impact every facet of our lives. So whatever your vocation is, you are to live a life that is righteous and holy before God who is righteous and holy. And you are to act with justice according to how God has called us to act. We are to do what is good, and we are to love kindness, and we are to walk humbly with God. This has direct application to our day-to-day lives. And then if we are to pray according to the character of God, we need to understand some things about this righteous and just God. God is eternal. That means that with God there is no beginning or end. But your life and my life is bookended. We have a limited time on this earth. Yes, we know that there's an eternal vista in front of us. We know that there's something more that is coming. But in this moment, in this life, God has given you opportunities. 
And as you pray, you're recognizing that while your time is limited, God is eternal. So what God is doing has eternal implications. And while we're limited by the boundaries of our earthly lives, God is not limited by any such boundaries. And this impacts how we pray. God is all-powerful. He is strong and we are weak. God knows all that there is to know. Our knowledge is finite. It's limited. But God knows everything that there is to know. And our God is everywhere all at once. You and I are bound by space and by time. But when we pray, we're praying to the God who is without beginning or without end, who has all power to actually do something about what it is that we are praying for. He knows everything about the situation that there is to know about the situation perfectly. And he's everywhere all at once. And we are privileged to be able to come to him and pray. The psalmist appealed to the character of God. In Psalm 103 and verse 2 and following, he said, My soul, bless the Lord, and do not forget all his benefits. He forgives all your iniquity. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with faithful love and compassion. He satisfies you with good things. Your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord executes acts of righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. When you go to God and pray according to his character, what you're doing is you are anchoring yourself in the understanding that God always does what is right according to his sovereign will in his perfect timing. Pray according to the character of God. Lesson number two, pray always with faith. The widow was a symbol of the poor and the defenseless. She was a woman with little standing. A widow in those days would have likely had few resources and seemingly no way of actually getting justice uh, from such a judge. But what is inferred here is that she believed she could gain justice against her adversary. And the reason that I say what is inferred here is that she believed that she could gain justice uh, against her adversary is that she kept coming to the judge. She would not have continually come to this judge unless she thought that she was going to get an answer. And if we are to pray always with faith, that means that we have to believe that when we pray, number one, God is able, that God hears, and that he cares enough to act on our behalf. And if we don't have faith, we're not going to pray with persistent prayer. And when you pray in faith, you pray in certainty. And I think James chapter 5 provides the example of praying in faith similar to this. Uh, James writes of praying for the sick uh, in faith and the Lord answering and healing that, uh, those people and the, those request, answering those requests. And he illustrated it from the story of Elijah. You remember what was going on in the days that Elijah served God? People were caught up in idolatry. They were worshiping Baal. And Elijah prayed that it would not rain. You can read the full story in 1 Kings 17 and 18. And he must have been certain that when he prayed it would come to pass because 1 Kings indicates that Elijah went into the court of wicked King Ahab 
And he said in verse 1, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. You better be absolutely certain when you go into the court of a wicked king and make such a statement like that, that that's actually going to take place because it would have cost you your life otherwise. Very nearly did anyway. And 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 1 says, After a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So God says to Elijah, It's going to rain. And Elijah delivers the message. And it was because he had prayed with confidence in the Lord. Are you absolutely confident that when you pray that God is listening that because you are covered by the blood of Jesus and you have standing in Jesus Christ, that when you come to the throne that God receives your prayers, that's the kind of confidence that we need. And, and if we don't have that kind of confidence, we need to ask the Lord to help us to have it. And when you pray in faith, you pray in surrender. And as verse 7 says here, will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Let me translate that another way. Won't God do it on behalf of his people? A praying church is a powerful church. A praying life is a purposeful life. And the reason being is we're seeing that there's something far greater than us. That does not mean that God does not care about the most minute of details in your life. God knows the numbers of the hair on, hairs on your head. Of course he cares about the little things. But in the midst of all the collection of those little things that God is working in, God is working out a far greater purpose for his glory and for our good. And when we say, won't God do it on behalf of his people? Absolutely God is going to do it on behalf of his people. Because he's obligated himself to us in a loving covenant relationship. And he desires to do good on our behalf. Think about Moses in the Old Testament, who, a man who walked in intimacy with God, and he walked by faith. Exodus chapter 33 specifically speaks of the tent of meeting, the place of worship. And as the account goes, when Moses would go into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. And the Bible says that when the people saw the cloud that they all stood and they worshiped. And the reason they all stood and worshiped is because they knew that that symbolized the very presence of God and that the man of God was meeting with God on their behalf, interceding on their behalf, and the Lord was speaking with Moses. And verse 11 of that chapter says that the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Here was Moses, a man who knew God by faith, probably in his 80s by that time, and he had experienced anything but a perfectly seamless life. He'd experienced some successes, but he'd also experienced some failures. And yet he prayed on behalf of the people. And what he longed for was the glory of God in, in their midst and the will of God on behalf of the people of God. And that's what we are seeking in prayer. You understand ultimately our goal is not the answer to prayer alone, but the goal is to meet with God. 
The goal is to know God. The goal is to have intimacy with the God who has given us life, who's created us in his image, who has called us into being, who has saved us by his grace. It's to walk closely with him so that we know him better. And so that as we know him better, that our character is more conformed to his character. And as our character is conformed to his character, then our ways are conformed to his ways and we can live justly and rightly in the world. And we can be a voice for what is right and a challenge to what is wrong. And here in verse 8, the verse that I've already referenced, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? I told you, I think this is really more of a rhetorical question than an uncertain one because it speaks to our need to pray in faith. Context in the scripture is central to our understanding of the scripture. Here's what I mean by that. In between the first and the second coming of Jesus, God's people are to pray in faith. You remember back in Luke chapter 11 in the Lord's Prayer, we find it also in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus said to them, when you pray, pray this way, Father, hallowed be your name. Holy be your name. Your kingdom come. So when we're praying in faith, we're saying, God, holy is your name. May your name be proclaimed as holy in all the world. May all of the nations know that there is a God who loves them and cares for them. May your name be exalted among all the nations so that people would come to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, and may your will be done. This is the prayer. And I think very practically speaking about verse 8, Jesus knew that there was going to be a long time between his first coming and his ascension back into heaven and his second coming. After all, today, more than 2,000 years, or at least nearly 2,000 years, have passed since Jesus taught this parable. And yet, we can be certain of his return. So here's what my hope would be. That the Lord would find us passionately pursuing him, working to advance his kingdom through the good news, pursuing justice and mercy, and doing what he told us to do. That's who we should be as the people of God, that we would be walking passionately, pursuing God in a personal relationship with him, that we would be working to advance the kingdom of God through the good news of Jesus Christ, that we would be pursuing justice and mercy in the world and doing what is right and challenging what is wrong and doing what Jesus told us to do. Now, this does not present a casual Christianity. This does not present a Christianity that's sitting on the sidelines. This is not present a Christianity that is do your own thing and live as you conveniently can and give God the leftovers. That's not the type of faith this is calling us to. This is calling us to a spirit-filled life, a word-directed life, a Jesus-exalting life, a life of discipleship. And in the middle of that, faith is important because without faith we cannot please God. You look around the world today and you can find certain regions and nations where uh, the church is growing rapidly. 
It's advancing. Many people are coming to faith in Jesus. And yet in other parts of the world, it's declining rapidly. Persecution's on the rise. Opposition is growing. False teachers abound. And between decline and persecution, we could easily lose heart. But here's what's going to reveal your faith. Time and the return of Jesus is going to reveal your faith and mine. And our faith in God is expressed through our prayer to God. Pray always with faith. Lesson number three, pray and do not give up. For a while, the unjust judge in the parable was unwilling, but later he says to himself, because this widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice so that she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. You say, well, how long had she been coming with her request? I don't know, but it was long enough that this judge was feeling pestered. She repeatedly and continually returned to the court to seek justice. And when he would show up for court, there she was, relentlessly coming with her request. And the idea, interestingly, of the phrase, wear me out, is borrowed from the boxing ring. It's the idea of being given a black eye or striking under the eye. Joel Green, in his Gospel of Luke commentary, wrote, The language Luke uses is startling, perhaps even humorous. For it invokes images of the almighty, fearless, macho judge, cornered and slugged by the least powerful person in society. And thus Jesus accents the astonishingly uncharacteristic initiative and persistence of a powerless woman in the face of injustice. Now church, I know that persisting in prayer is a challenge. Often when our prayers are not immediately answered or not seemingly answered, what do we do? We tend to either stop praying or shift focus. We just figure we got it wrong and and we're not going to pray that particular prayer anymore. But when we persist in prayer, we are praying and we're not giving up. So what our desire is, because none of us have perfect motives, none of us have perfect intentions And what we're asking God to do is to align our will with his will so that the desires of our heart will line up with the desire of God for us. And then when we have that kind of confidence that, yes, we're praying for the right thing. It's consistent with the word of God. It's something that would bring glory to God. It's something that would be good for us individually or good for our families. And when we have that kind of confidence and we begin to pray those prayers, even though we don't get an immediate answer, we persist in it. And we keep on praying. And we don't give up. Ian Bounds said, importune or persistent praying is the earnest inward movement of the heart toward God. And that's what happens when we pray and we do not give up. Do you really believe that God hears and answers your prayers? Do you really believe that God can save the lost? Do you believe that God can heal the broken? Do you believe that God can provide for the needy? Do you believe that God can exert justice and mercy in the world through your life? Then if you do, you will pray and not give up. Sam Storms raised some 
good questions in his book, Reaching God's Ear, to, I think, help us assess our prayer lives and the genuineness of them concerning persistence in prayer. And he said, do we repeat a request because we think that the quality of a prayer is dependent on the quantity of words? Or are we persisting because we're praying in faith and we're waiting on God? Do we repeat a request because we think that God is ignorant and he needs to be informed? Or if not ignorant, at least he's unconcerned. Do we repeat our prayers because we believe that God is unwilling to answer and that we must prevail upon him? Or do we repeat a petition because we think that God will be swayed in his decision by our putting on a show of zeal and piety as if God cannot see through the thin veil of hypocrisy? When we pray, we're praying and we're not giving up because we're desiring to grow in our relationship with God and our dependence on him. And we believe that the request that we are lifting up to the throne of God through the blood of Jesus Christ is what God would want to take place in our lives or in the lives of those around us. And therefore, we persist. And when you pray and not, don't give up, I believe your character and your faithfulness will grow in other areas of your life as well. We're told in the scripture that the Apostle Paul was given a thorn in the flesh. It's never identified as to what it is. I think there's a specific reason it's not identified as to what it is so that we could see the application of it even in our own lives. The issue was not what it was that was the thorn in the flesh for Paul, but the issue was what God said to him and taught him through that. And that is, my grace is sufficient for you. And when we pray and we don't give up, then we learn that the grace of God is sufficient for our lives. And I think when you pray and, you, and do not give up, it keeps you from drifting spiritually. What happens when you get discouraged in prayer and you stop praying as you should? You start drifting spiritually. There, there's no neutral in the Christian life. There's none. Either you're moving toward God, you're growing in conformity to Jesus, you're being encouraged and, and, and strengthened, or you're drifting and you're moving towards your own way of doing things. What happens the moment that you get... Uh, lukewarm about your Bible reading and either you don't read it very often or you stop reading it and you're not pursuing God you start drifting spiritually what happens the moment that you stop gathering with the people of God and the community of faith where the word is taught and songs of praise are lifted up and prayers are prayed together what happens you start drifting Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus told the disciples to watch and pray. And the reason that Jesus told the disciples to watch and pray is because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's why. So I want to encourage you in whatever it is that you're praying for to pray and do not give up. As we come toward a close, I want to highlight this phrase. The importance of all of us crying out to God day and night. Cry out to God day and night. This is praying without ceasing. Now let's circle back uh, to the symbols of this parable. I think this will kind of pull the pieces together and help us have a firm understanding of, of this particular passage. I told you that uh, the different symbols and parables are are very important because if you get them right and 
you understand the meaning of it, then it's going to take you in the right direction to the application. But if you get the symbols wrong in, the, in a parable, then you might end up in the wrong place with the application as well. So here's what I mean by that. Ultimately, this is a parable of contrast. We have the unjust judge, but it's not the unjust judge that we're praying to. It is the loving Heavenly Father to whom we are praying. So the lesson here is not God's like the unjust judge. That's not, that's not the lesson. If you walk out of here thinking that God was like the unjust judge, you might perpetually be frustrated in your prayers because you wonder, is he just going to get tired of me and finally answer? No. He is the loving Heavenly Father. And when you pray, he is receiving your request as the loving Heavenly Father. And there's a difference between an unjust judge and a loving Heavenly Father who is righteous and just. And you can pray to the loving Heavenly Father with great confidence and faith in Him. And then there's a helpless widow contrasted with the elect children of God. Yes, we are helpless and yes, we are poor in spirit, but we are not the helpless widow in this parable. We are the elect children of God. And just as we are praying to a loving Heavenly Father, He is looking at us through faith in Jesus. And what He sees in us is that we are the elect children of God. That we have been covered by the blood of Christ. And when we pray, we are praying in that solid position as children of God. And we know that He's hearing our prayers and He's going to answer. And then we have the contrast between an uncertain delay... And faith in God to act. God will act according to his will in his timing. He won't act outside of his will. And he won't be a moment too early or a minute too late. It will be consistent with who he is. And what he wants to do on our behalf. So as I close out this message today. I know there are many things probably that you're praying for. We've got more prayer needs represented than we do people. Either here in the room or listening. Or maybe listening to the message later on. The needs are varied and they are great. But let's bring this down to a point of application. First of all, if you are not in Christ today. If you've never been saved if you know that you've not been forgiven, you've not been redeemed, and you need to be, then the only prayer you need to be praying is a prayer of repentance and faith. And if you will turn from your sins and turn to Jesus in repentance and believe that he came to live and to die on the cross for your sins and to be raised from the dead, and that even now he's seated at the right hand of God the Father, if you will confess Jesus as your Savior and Lord, He'll save your soul in this moment. That's the first prayer you need to be praying. But for the great majority of us here in the room, what would be one thing that you need to persist in prayer for? Is it a lost loved one? Is it a particular health burden that you're dealing with? Is it a family dynamic that you can't seem to overcome? Is it a prodigal child who's wandering somewhere in the world? 
I could go on. What are the needs? Would you think of one thing in these closing moments? And would you lift that up to the throne of God and say, God, I'm praying in this moment because I believe that this would be your will. It would be consistent with your word. It would be for your glory and for my good and for the good of the person or situation I'm praying for. Would you lift that up to God? And then would you make a commitment that you're going to persist in prayer in that particular matter? Spire heads together for a moment as we go to the throne of grace. God, we thank you today that we have the privilege to persist in prayer. That as we come to you, we're coming to our loving Heavenly Father who has the hairs on our heads numbered, who knows every intimate detail of our lives, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and everything in between. The one who loves us the most, even though you know the most about us. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your kindness and compassion toward us. I pray if there are any of the sound of my voice who have not yet come to repentance and faith in Christ, that they would in this moment. They would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. There are many needs represented among us, oh God. Help us to persist in prayer and to believe as we persist in prayer. And to pray in a way that would bring glory to you and good on our behalf. Thank you for this incredible privilege. We are humbled by it. And we are encouraged because of it. Answer these prayers, Lord. And we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen.